Hello and welcome to Corona Stories, the place where people can be open and honest about their feelings surrounding Covid, lockdown and related matters. I'm Christine Padgham. In this conversation, I speak to a lady about her experiences with her mother-in-law during lockdown. The conversation was recorded on the 10th of January. A warm welcome to you, lovely lady. You have agreed to chat today because you've been having some difficulties during this time, as many people have, I believe, with your mother-in-law. Yes. Do you want to tell me what's been going on? So basically, at the start of lockdown, the very first one back in March, um, she had been in hospital and was swiftly um, discharged when everything started kicking off. She was supposed to have been assessed to with a view to go into um, long-term care um, just due to physical um, difficulties. She's 93. Oh. Um, so the the community mental health team were supposed to be involved and obviously, you know, various different agencies. However, everything was put on the back burner um, because of COVID. Um, she then was keeping not bad health. You know, we, we, the last thing you want is, do you really want anyone to go with a loved one was into a nursing home at that point, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so over the summer, she kept, you know, not too bad health-wise and, you know, with her carers going in and with us going in, uh-huh. she she managed okay till she took ill again. Now, being 93, as you can imagine, she's been in and out of hospital several times over yeah. the years. Um, and never, ever have we uh, been asked um, to speak about a, a DNR or anything like that. Oh. When she took ill again, she ended up um, in her, her, her local hospital and pretty much from the minute she was going in, so many people spoke to me about, about DNRs with her. Obviously mm-hmm. knowing you know, what's been going on and hearing that this had been happening, it was, I wasn't overly surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, I felt it, you know, it, it felt quite strange, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Um, especially given that she's not, um, you know, we don't have power of attorney or anything like that for her because she is um, capable of, you know, we, you know, we don't need to have that because she's capable of making her own decisions and whatnot. So she was in the hospital and then she was discharged when I think it was if I if I remember right it was when we were they were talking about a sort of peak in November. Um then two days later she she was basically discharged and she was bleeding and everything. She was two days later she ended up having to get taken back in again. Mm-hmm. Um antibiotics etc. Then she was moved to um a community hospital for supposedly for rehab. There haven't been in the community hospitals before. That's normally what would happen is they would get rehabilitation with physios, etc., etc. But to be honest with you, they were keeping all the elderly people in their bed or in a chair beside their bed. There was not really any mixing between them, mm-hmm. even despite the fact that they had never had COVID in this hospital. They've mm-hmm. never had it. Even at the start, they didn't have it. They managed to keep themselves safe. Mm-hmm. Visiting was strictly half an hour a day. Um, you don't, when you're only seeing a patient or a, a family member for half an hour a day, it's difficult to ascertain how well they're doing and as they're going downhill. Yeah. 
she went really, really, really downhill very quickly. Um, and when I spoke to them, I discovered that they didn't have her on a fluid chart. They didn't have her on a food chart. She was basically, if she wasn't eating her lunch, they weren't helping her. They were just taking it away. Mm. So I quickly had to change the visit in so that I could actually go at mealtimes. I said that I wanted to go at mealtimes, so I was having to take her lunch up to and our dinner um, if I could manage to get in twice, which was very um, rare that I would get in twice because it was strictly this mm. half-hour visit in. Despite the fact there was no COVID in the ward, um, it was visiting in a room that they had commandeered, had previously had beds in it, um, and they would feel it in, and then they would feel it out. Um, you know, when your half hour was up or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I say, she was she was going downhill fast. So the doctor, um, she took a sort of turn for the worst, and we were we got the phone call, as it were. Mm-hmm. Basically saying that there was nothing we could do and that he would not be recommending that she was transferred back to the medical hospital for any intervention. So at this point we thought her relative was dying. Um, mm. About five days later I got a phone call um, from a doctor's surgery of all places and I was like, you know, what your phone and what, what's this? Is, you're not my doctor's surgery. And it was a different doctor that had seen her. And immediately was, she was rushed into the local actual hospital um, for for treatment. So mm-hmm. she got treatment. She got antibiotics. She got she was put on fluid again. The whole drug bureau speaking to us about DNR etc. Mm-hmm. And they were going to try the antibiotics, but they didn't, you know, hold out much hope and whatnot. So of course she rallied and was put back into the community hospital. Um, and they were really wanting to discharge her home. So again, not seeing her, you're not able to get in and see how she's mm. seeing how she's walking, seeing how she's managing. You're just going by what the nurses are saying. And to be fair, the social workers are only going by that too, yeah. because they're not really getting in to see them at the same level that they would have before. So they got a hospital bed. They said she, you know they would discharge her home. They gave us a hospital bed, a hoist commode, etc, etc. When they actually discharged her home, um, the carers weren't allowed to actually get her out of bed. So she was basically bed-bound. She was having to use her bed as a toilet. Now, this is a lady that's not incontinent. You know, oh. not incontinent. She, she's got all her faculties. Mm-hmm. She's just physically not very good. Um, I don't know that this seems like it doesn't have a lot to do with COVID, but I think it does. Because yeah. if we were able to visit her in the hospital under normal circumstances, there's absolutely no way that we would have actually agreed to her being able to get home. Because we were actually having to feed her. She was a choking risk. Mm-hmm. They couldn't feed her. They were only in for 15 minutes. Yeah. So we were having to give her all our meals. They couldn't give her medication because she couldn't hold her own medication. Carers are not allowed to administer medication in that way. They're only allowed to give the patient their medication and put it in their hand. But she was trying to get it in her mouth and missing her mouth. So she got, she was just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and eventually, our GP never once came out, even though we phoned them. Um, once I put everything in an email to social services explaining that she was a choking risk, etc., cetera, et cetera mm-hmm. they finally agreed that she needed to be put in a nursing, not put in a nursing home, but she had to go in a nursing home. So they were, they were brilliant. Social services under this are under immense amounts of pressure. Everything's getting landed on them. Everything's getting landed on carers. GPs are not seeing people. They're just not. They're just washing their hands. 
We, at one point, not be- not long before she was going into the home, she was really poorly, and um, I phoned her GP, and we said, oh, well, um, we'll get a community team out. Team out. We-, we ended up with a consultant, an actual consultant, and a nurse to come and see Anne. And at this point, they were like in complete agreement that she, there was no way that she should have been discharged home. So we managed to get a place, like I say, um, in, a, in a, a local um, nursing home for her um, as a respite type um, scenario initially. So she had to have a COVID test to, to go in. So she had her COVID test and obviously it was negative. We had to get a, she had to have a, she had to go in on the Friday, otherwise the COVID test was going to run out. It was going to go for the 72 hours. Okay. Social services phoned me at 7 o'clock on the Thursday night. And they were like, we are in an absolute predicament. And I'm like, you know, what's the problem? We are not allowed to phone an ambulance. Your mother-in-law can't be moved by normal patient transport because she is so poorly. She needs to be moved in a bed. We're not allowed to phone ambulances. And our GP is point blank refusing to do it. Because she's in the community, it needs to be a GP. But they're refusing to do it, obviously because of it must be, you know, because it would come out of the budget or whatever. Um, point like refusing to do it. Um, they're saying that the hospital needs to do it because she shouldn't have been discharged home. The hospital is saying it's a GP. We're not allowed to phone an ambulance. The GP, so sorry, the GP was saying that the hospital point has like to... Point yep, yep. The GP was saying <laughs> that the hospital needs to call an ambulance. An ambulance, yep. Because the yep. hospital shouldn't have... Discharged her um, at home. So you've got... <laughs> okay, right. So she's trying to get... <laughs> okay. okay. It's just crazy. It's like the world's gone mad. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, what are we going to do? She's like, I don't know. I'm still working on it. I'm going to phone them first thing and see if I can speak to somebody else. So I was like, okay. So I tried to get a private ambulance that evening and I just couldn't get any. There's a couple of companies in Scotland. I couldn't get anyone to get back in touch with me. Um, so basically I phoned her doctor in the morning at 8 o'clock and said, listen, you need to get this organised, otherwise I'm going to sit in your surgery and I'm not going to wear my mask, I'm not going to be social distancing and I'm going to wait there until somebody phones an ambulance because this, we need to get, she needs to be in the nursing home today or the COVID test is going to run out. Um, and within two hours there was an actual ambulance at our door. They okay. phoned it, got it sorted. But it's all this... It's all this red tape, which is maybe not so much a COVID thing, but given the whole circumstances around the whole COVID thing, a lot of agencies are not working and think we're one another. Mm-hmm. You know? So she's now in the home. We can't see her, um, which is really difficult. Um, we've had one visit. Well, my husband has. I had to stand at the window. He went in. She couldn't hear him because he had his mask on. It was oh. danger tape. Danger tape two metres between the two of them. There was a member of staff sat there the full time to make sure he didn't touch her. It was just absolutely horrible. It's like it's worse than being in prison. I've spoken to her on the phone. She's like, I don't want to be here. Like she said, I know I need to be here. She said, I don't want to be here. She went, I'd rather take my chances with this virus and be able to see my family. She says, I'm 93. I don't care if I get the virus. I don't want to be here. She went, I'm living between life and death. You know, this is a lady who actually was friends with Margot McDonald, who was a staunch supporter of the SNP right at the grassroots. That's right. 
right at grassroots. My husband, they had, they had people in their house. They were, they were frowned upon by the establishment because she was such a revolutionary in her time. And this is how she's been treated. It's disgusting. Yeah. Um, there's no reason for no visits to be given because it's a huge place. And this is no reflection on them. They can't help it. They're just following the rules. They're amazing. These people in nursing homes and lots of doctors and nurses and everything, but people are not thinking outside the box. There are so many things that could be done to ease this for people, but people are not thinking outside the box and they're not trying to come up with solutions. We could be standing at the window on the telephone. She could be in there on the telephone, being able to look at us and actually speak to us. Yeah. But they're saying, oh, we've not got the staff for that. And it's like, well, there's plenty of people that work in dentists that can't work, so get them in to help. Get them in to facilitate these things. There are people that work in the NHS that are getting, that over the, over the year have been getting paid to work from home. They could be helping with things like this. I know. That's the thing, isn't it? Like, there, there are solutions to these problems. There are huge. There are. But these are even volunteers. Yeah, you just wonder... I suppose the thing is, what they would say is um, they can't have more people in the home than Mm -hmm. is absolutely necessary. But it's that question again, isn't it, which keeps coming up time and time again. Why do we not consider it essential for a 93-year-old to be able to see her family? Exactly. It is essential. Of course, Um, because that's what you're alive for, isn't it? (laughs) That's what we're all here for, is to be around people and to influence people and to make the world a better place by changing the world around you and if you're just on your own all the time you can't do it and it must just be awful being unwell and being in a place where she doesn't know mm-hmm. and not being able yeah. to not even able to get outside for fresh air not to be able to communicate with people the same way that you can with your family yeah. It's, you know, what she says is it's like living between life and death, mm-hmm. living a halfway. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she, she's of the opinion that she doesn't care. She's she's ready for her next big adventure, if she would maybe put it. Um, she doesn't care if she gets COVID. She just wants to see her family. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and I know that we're protecting other people, might not feel the same. Surely, if there are people and families who maybe have power of attorney that are of a like mind, why can't we just switch things up a bit and put everyone in the same home that's of the same opinion and families of the same opinion, people of the same opinion, members of staff of the same opinion? Yeah. We've basically been told the yeah. first vaccine and we've been told even once she's had her second vaccine that there's probably nothing going to change. So solutions need to, we can't keep putting this off, solutions need to be made for these elderly people immediately. They have to. We have to find ways around for them to visit families, because otherwise, they are completely infringing on their human rights. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that I want to emphasise again, that um, the authorities and institutions are making it very clear that even mm-hmm. once the population has been vaccinated, we are going mm-hmm. to have to still live like this. This is what they are intending and what their plan is. And people really need to understand that. That I do believe that there's a lot of people out there who are not enjoying living like this, but they're waiting for the the vaccine to fix it all. And we are being told repeatedly that the vaccine 
will not fix these problems. This vaccine isn't really a vaccine in the normal sense of the word. It's, it doesn't immunise you. It yeah. lessens the severity of the disease. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's that's the justification, I think, that organisations, institutions and the government are using now to back the up thing is, this statement yeah. that life will not go on as it had before. No, um, no. And the thing is, this, this is an elderly person. If you're lessening the effect of this deadly disease, it's probably still going to kill them. I know. So how much is it going to lessen? Like, you know, it's like, is, is anyone even thinking out, thinking in a straight line? It's this thing, isn't it? How do you grade the severity of a disease? I mean, if you're very elderly and very vulnerable to COVID, well, is it better mm -hmm. to get it these are impossible questions to answer and it's, I think, it's quite insane that we're even asking them. But, you know, mm -hmm. is it better for a 93-year-old vulnerable person to get COVID less badly? Does that mean that they'll suffer for longer? Will it mean that they'll suffer longer before they die? Or does it mean that they won't yep. die? What? And then, I mean, this is... A and let's face it, these people are not going to go into hospital. These people that are in nursing homes, they are not going to get a hospital place to make them feel any better. They're not going to get no, any relief. No, they're not. No, they're not. They're not going to get put on a drip to help them with fluids, to help them have an easier death. They're not going to get that. I think that you know? point that you're making is a really good one and a really hard-hitting one. Um, and these these are the things that we need to be speaking about now because the conversation and the tone of the debate has been set like this. It's terrible. It's terrible. And it's terrible that we haven't even had these conversations. I know. And it's lovely to be speaking to you. And I'm now speaking to lots of people that I would never normally have spoken to. But I do I know. at the same time fervently wish that we weren't speaking. Because I know. I don't want to be hearing these stories and... You know, and the other thing is, you don't want to. It's, we, 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 and there's a part of you that just wishes that, that you know, that we were wrong. We were wrong about this, I and uh, wish and that the government were right. And that, you know, because uh -huh. <laughs> it would be easier if, 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 if you trusted in what was happening. It would be so much easier, so much easier to take everything. And, but there's so many red herrings. There's so little um, arguments from other sides. Um, you know, there's, there's no one questioning these rules. There's no one questioning anything. It's like our governments are just making these rules with no op opposition heard. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that there is opposition, but there's no opposition party. It's like we're in this one party state at the moment. It's, mm -hmm. it's just horrible. I know, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary to have the government making these sorts of decisions about how we live our lives and for there to be yeah. no pushback at all and no... Yes. Like, because no matter what, you know, your position on COVID, I, I, I feel like, I keep saying this, but I feel like we're now moving past the... We're moving past the point where... COVID is really the big issue. Like no matter Absolutely. no matter what this disease is, no matter how badly it might affect some people, we're now entering territory here where we must address much bigger questions than just this one virus where 
you know, people are saying it doesn't matter. This could be Ebola. It could be the plague. It could be mm-hmm. it could be a you know terrifying virus with an absolutely massive mortality rate, and we still wouldn't think that it was okay for the government to dictate yeah. to us how we live our lives. There, there always uh-huh. has to come a point where you decide what risk you want to take and how you want to live your life with that risk. Absolutely. And I think that, that one of the big issues I feel, I mean, I know that, um, you know, the story I was telling you sounds a bit like um, sweet in the NHS or, or whatever. I used to work in the NHS until the start of this and then I, I left. Um, so, you know, that's another story. <laughs> um, but basically, within the NHS, there's a... Uh, that's the way it's, there's just a sort of um, attitude of historically of that's the way we do it and that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I have a friend who was a nurse who was working one night. She was working a night shift and a bulb had gone out. And she was one pair, one staff nurse and there was three um, auxiliaries, I think, looking after between 20 and 30 people um, with quite, you know, significant needs in hospital. So the bulb went, the phone, the state's management, etc. And three guys came out to change a bulb. Yeah. Three guys employed by CERCO, obviously. These are the questions, and the, the, these are the things that the people in that need to be fighting about. We, we shouldn't be in a situation where the NHS are still using paper masks if, if this virus is only stopped by the F3 mask, you know? These are the questions that our, our health service needs to be asked. But the way that everything's gone, the health service are blaming anti-vaxxers and people that don't, you know, don't believe in COVID. That isn't actually the issue. The issue is that NHS is not prepared. They've not done anything to prepare it better in the last nine months. Yeah. You know, and nurses and everyone need to all sit together and look at what's happening above them and who's making the decisions. Because that's not right. Why should three people change a bulb when four people are looking after 25? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, it's laughable. Yeah. I think um, that is becoming an unavoidable issue now is not just, and this is nothing against NHS staff at all. No, it's more no, 100% this, not. criticism of the system in which they work, but I mean, I am hearing constantly stories from people. I mean, obviously, the NHS has always been quite a bureaucratic organisation, and you always get stories about people who've kind of fallen foul of the the red tape and things. But that mm-hmm. seems to have grown arms and legs now with their COVID procedures. And um, I mean, some of the yeah. stories, the stories that I get told to me, you know, by private message from people, people call me and we have chats about it. I've got one recorded, which will be going out to um, podcast um, from last week. But it's just horrifying the um, the extent to which COVID has added to that. And now it's like okay. they're constantly testing, they see a COVID patient and then that's all we can see. Um, Mm-hmm. you know, because of a positive test, even if the patient's in for nothing to do with COVID. I don't know, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to get numbers about that, you know, on <laughs> to tell you how many people that's happening to, but I just know, and obviously people do come to me who are unhappy, so I'm getting a, maybe a not necessarily totally representative <coughs> view of it, but it's yeah. incredible the number of people who come to me with the same stories that 
their patient, their relatives being categorised as a COVID patient, and then that's like all they see. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem is, is, as well as you know, if you do question these things, you're automatically classed as someone who doesn't believe there's a virus. And it's like, no, that's not actually the case. You know, your class is, yeah, it's, it's, you know, or you hate the NHS, you're not, you're against nurses. It's like, no, I'm for nurses, I'm for the NHS, I'm for doctors, you know, it's, it's, but we need to help, we need to help them. And I think this campaigning is going to help them, ultimately. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's not because you want to do something to make their life more difficult. You want to do this to make everybody's life a bit easier. Yeah, I want everybody's life to be easier. And I absolutely am not a COVID denier. I know that there are people who who get very sick from this virus and I know that it is, or it certainly has been a public health crisis, this um, situation. But I just think that, you know, we definitely need to get our response to it more in proportion because if we don't um, snap out of this, we're going to be living like this forever. I mean, that's the current trajectory we're on. Yeah, um, yeah. I keep looking at te- like television. Well, well, you know, you're that. watching a movie. And, <laughs> no, no, I mean, like, you're watching a movie <laughs> and then someone will shake someone's hand or someone will give someone a hug. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I'm jealous because we can't do that. Actually, I'm getting envy when you see the human connection in movies and TV shows. Yeah, I know. It does start to look strange, doesn't it, when you see, um, yeah, we were watching something, was it Modern Family or something last night, and they were at a wedding, and just looking at all these people in a room together, and just thinking, am I ever going to see that again? Mm -hmm. And I can't believe Mm -hmm. I'm having these thoughts, you know, um, and it's almost like I've forgotten what it feels like to be in a room full of people. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, how's it? That's that's the thing. It's that the communication skills of our young people are just going to be so badly affected. And to be honest, let's face it: with um, social media and them constantly on their phones, for a lot of youngsters, their social skills weren't great to start off with. <laughs> you know, and this is just going to exacerbate that so much. I know. I mean, when are we going to be allowed in a, a room full of people again? Is it like next year or the year after that? And by that time, my daughters are 10 and 7. Um, and I just wonder, my family's quite into big parties. We've always been yeah. big party people. Yeah. And I was just thinking, I wonder if she even remembers going to a party. Mm-hmm. She remembers that weddings and things. We were actually speaking about this. Like we were talking about a party. I think it was my mum and dad's um, silver um, or some wedding anniversary. It wasn't silver, more than that. Um, but they, we were. I was reminding her that she'd gone to this party and she just cried the whole time. She was quite young, but she didn't like it. It was too loud and there were too many people and things. And um, I was asking her if she remembers it, and she said she didn't. And I just thought, I wonder. If by the time she's ten, if she's going to remember what it's like to go to a party with like a DJ and a lot of people in a room in a bar, you know, yeah. and like nothing. Yeah. I mean, there would have been a hundred people at this party, and I met and kissed and cuddled all of them, every mm-hmm. single person. I met well, maybe not every person, but 
I met some new people, shook their hands. You just think this is, it's already starting to feel alien, that idea yeah. of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I just, I, you know, it's like young people who are just maybe leaving school. And at that point in time, I can remember going to, going to clubs, going to festivals, yeah. cuddling, kissing people you didn't really know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going well, to do that. And they're going to be so scared to do that, even when and if restrictions get lifted. Yeah, because we're training people to think this way. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a widespread um, misunderstanding of how easy it is to change people's psychology. You actually don't need much. That's why the nudge unit is called the nudge unit, because it's just yeah. a little nudge here and then a little nudge there, and then a few nudges become a shove. But okay. it's actually, human psychology is quite subtle and it's quite easy to change. And I certainly see um, there's not a single person that I know who I don't think has been, who I don't see a change in since mm-hmm. all this um, started. And, and I'm just thinking, to get back to your mother-in-law, she's 93, and I just feel so sad for people of that age when I think they might never see the old world come back. That's exactly it. She can remember going to, she lived in Edinburgh, and she can remember during the war um, being sent to live down in, I think it was North Berwick, she ended up going to live. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, had, had, she had to go away and train, because and, her dad was, you know, her dad was at war and they were scared of, for the, you know, for the kids' mm-hmm. life. Um, her dad was in Gallipoli, and, um, you know, he was... Um, then her brother was in the Second World War, but her dad was away in Gallipoli. He was mentioned in the statues. She lived through that. She lived through the Second World War. Um, so she lived through some very dangerous times in history. Where, yes. Where her life yep. was very much in danger mm-hmm. at times. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know she. She remembers it, you know, she remembers all this. She doesn't, you know, like I said before, she doesn't have dementia or anything mm-hmm. like that, you know. Um, she remembers everything. And now to spend the last couple of years in our life, or however long that may be, in a nursing home um, who we're not going to be able to see her, she's not going to be able to see her family, certainly not going to be able to see extended family, like my family, that you know, who are mm-hmm. quite close to her or anything like that. Um, never be able to hug her son again. You know, like that's actually torture. Right. That's actually torture. And I would actually quite like to know what the prison visits are like in an actual prison at the moment. Are they getting their privacy? Are they getting um, got odd guards sitting there to make sure they don't touch one another? Because if they are, then we seriously need to look at what, the way that the elderly are being, um, you know, um, treated unfairly with us. Yeah. And it's not about, you know, it's not about trying to, you know, disregarding someone else's life or someone else's views of, you know, well, I'd rather, you know, keep my mum safe by not cuddling her. I know for a fact that my mother-in-law wants us to hug her. Mm-hmm. She wants to speak to us. And that needs to be her decision. And that's getting taken away from her. Yeah. I'd like Nicola Sturgeon to go and see her. When I seen the picture of her talking to these elderly people, 
it made my blood boil because she clearly had her mask off because they couldn't understand what she was saying with her mask on. That was clearly what was happening there. I know. But yeah, when we visit, we, we, there's the communications not there because my, my husband had to have a mask on and she couldn't hear him. But it's okay for Nicola Sturgeon to do that. There's three elderly people um, in her family, but my husband couldn't speak to his mum properly mm. without someone listening in, making sure he didn't touch her. I mean, it's just disproportionate. The mask thing, not being allowed to take your mask off when you're trying to communicate mm-hmm. with your family is something that really, really upsets me because sometimes I do wonder if I'm the only person or one of the very few people who find that communicating with a mask on is intolerable. I, I don't even I don't even look at people in a supermarket anymore because no. you can't you can't you, you can't There's communicate no with a mask on. There's no point. No. Nope. Um nope. and when I I don't wear a mask because I'm exempt. But, mm-hmm. but a few months ago I was in the supermarket and I met somebody from the and it was in the local supermarket, I met somebody from the community and his dad had just died and we were having a chat which we probably, maybe that's not allowed because we were lingering in the supermarket socialising, but I was asking him you know, about his dad having died and it was just so difficult to conduct this conversation in a normal manner um, It's impossible Yeah, because normally especially, I live in a small community and normally I mean, it's actually been a problem in the past going to the local supermarket can be quite a time-consuming <laughs> business because you meet so many people that you know and the longer yeah. it's one of these things it snowballs the longer you're in there the more people come in who you know and the more people yeah. you talk to so I've got into trouble a number of times with my husband for going off to the supermarket and coming back like three and a half hours later because I got yeah. stuck in there so the, it's a really important place you know to meet or it yeah. used to be a really important meeting point and you would see elderly Absolutely. people in there having chats and things anyway Normally, you know, I would have had a proper conversation with this chap and commiserated with him. I don't know him very well, but he's a pal, you know. I would have sat, but it was just impossible. I couldn't understand anything that he was saying. I had to keep asking him to repeat himself. I was trying to commiserate with him, and you just can't do it. And I, I just, I remember thinking, I think that would have been maybe back in August or September or something. And I remember thinking, do other people, are other people just not acknowledging this? that this is a fundamental, you know, obstacle to having mm-hmm. an actual conversation with somebody when you can't see their face. Yeah, it, it really, it, when it gets, what gets my goal about this is when, just try all this, people were having hairy canaries about um, females wearing oh, a hijab. Yeah. <laughs> they were going absolutely nuts about teachers wearing hijabs and all the rest of it. I don't have a problem with it. Everybody's entitled to do whatever they want to do. And they were saying how it would impede in communication. Can't see their face. It's this, it's that, and that. And now these people are all just going, oh, no, we're all, we're all going to wear a mask. It's fine. Because we're doing it, because our government's able to do it, then we're just going to do that. Yeah. And it's like, no, geez, we're actually quite right. It does, it does impede communication. Yeah. There are issues to it. But everybody's not doing it, so it's, you know, it's not so much of a problem. But, you know, it's just, it's, people just swing on a, a sixpence. I know. That 
I, that is something that I just think about with amazement now when I think back to that debate. Would that have been eight years ago we were having? Mm-hmm. Was it was in 2010 or something. Yeah. Because I, yep, so. I used to live in an area, of, I'm pretty sure it was while we were living in this area, but we lived in an area that had a, a very large Muslim population. And you used to see a lot uh-huh. of women walking with the niqab on. And mm-hmm. I um, have to say, I did always find it very difficult to communicate with these people. So the uh-huh. place that I lived was very, very friendly and you would have talked to anyone but you would never conduct a conversation with somebody with their face covered because it is a barrier to communication. It's a barrier. So, yeah. when when we were having this debate and people were saying, "Oh, this is a barrier to communication. How are you supposed to um, contribute to society when you're covering your face? And how are you supposed to?" You're immediately saying, "I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to interact with you." And mm-hmm. all of those statements, I think, are correct. I think they were mm-hmm. reasonable. But the thing was, this was such a small minority. Of women and like you say mm-hmm. if people want to cover their faces fine if you're mm-hmm. ideologically or religiously persuaded that you should cover your face then absolutely go for it i don't mm-hmm. i'm never going to tell people what they should and shouldn't be wearing but yeah i just find it extraordinary that in such a short space of time people are now denying that covering your face is a barrier to communication and yeah. I mean, the part, <laughs> totally. part of the purpose of covering your face is not just about impeding the spread of the virus, which masks will not do anyway, and there is no evidence no. to suggest that they do. Um, and that's just a fact. Like, if you're coughing yeah. and sneezing, then probably, if you had COVID and you were coughing, then probably wearing a mask over your face will prevent you spreading it to so many people. But if you're supposedly asymptomatic and just breathing out virus particles, they're just going to go straight through your mask because they're tiny. Mm-hmm. They're much smaller than the holes in your mask. But yep. And we've got all this data from all around the world that shows that when you've introduced mask mandates, they do nothing to impede the spread of the infection. But having said all of that, one of the purposes of mask wearing I believe is to stop you interacting with people because that will stop you spreading the virus as well if you're not hanging around in the supermarket because it's so unpleasant um, mm-hmm. then you're not going to be interacting and I do actually have in some ways some respect for that government intervention from that point of view because I think there's a rational thinking behind it but the question is once again okay, you're going to cover people's faces, you're going to make it really difficult for them to interact with one another, and you're going to stop the spread of infections that way. Fine. Mm-hmm. That's a reasonable, um, yeah. that's a reasonable that that? conclusion to come to. But what are the costs of that? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Has anybody actually acknowledged that stopping people communicating is maybe not great for society? You know, mm-hmm. and then of course it's great for control, though, um, and I think that's it. And it puts a badge on people. Well, it separates people just by that one thing on your face, doesn't it? Well, yeah, because if you're not wearing a mask now, it's mm-hmm. extremely unpleasant, and mm-hmm. it makes you into some sort of pariah in mm-hmm. society. And it seems, in some cases, the law will turn on you because you're not mm-hmm. wearing a mask. Yeah, um, because. Uh, it's and like going back to your mother-in-law is it too much for a mother to ask to be able to see her son's face exactly I I just can't imagine that like not being able to see my daughter's faces 
not being allowed. Not being allowed. Not being allowed. It needs to be. They need to say right. Well, this is the a mask will help you ten percent, but uh, because you won't be speaking to anyone, social distancing is going to help you this amount or that. You know, it needs to be people's own choice. Fair enough. No concerts. No, you know, um, big festivals. You know, these big things for the time being until you know or whatever. But yes, this 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 barrier to family life has. It's got to go. It really has just got to go because it's just cruel and it's um, it's actually very upsetting. It's frightening. Um, people are scared. Children are having nightmares. My children have been having nightmares, really you know, bad, bad nightmares. Um, they're getting an, a cycle of negative thinking. They're constantly being bombarded that it's their fault that this is happening. My children think, well, not so much both of them, but one of, one of my children feels guilty all the time because she thinks it's her fault that and that the virus is spreading because it's constantly about saving your granny, young people, young people, young people. It's just awful. Yeah. It's like we're being gaslighted by by the media and our government to think that it's, it's, oh, it's your fault. It's not my fault, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. You know? It's, it's it's like this um, massive gaslighting exercise, and it's very very frightening. Mm, I'm frightened. Mhm. Me too. Yeah. Me too. I think. And I, I'm just as frightened as as of um, the government because there's no there doesn't seem to be anyone looking at different sides and different options. I'm just as scared of that as I am the virus. You know, that's not more so. Mm-hmm. Well, agreed. I think that you know? it should be, it's perfectly reasonable to be frightened of both things. Um, and I think that, you know, you can read everything about the virus and it's great when you're reading your graph that keeps me sane. But you still don't want your mum to catch it, you know, and um, or your mother-in-law or anyone, or your family or your gran or your auntie. You still think, gosh, I'm saying, I'm, you know, I have these beliefs, but God, if one of my family catch it, then, you know, and maybe I'm wrong. And, you know, you know it's, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a very scary thing for people. Did you read my Think Scotland article yesterday? Yes, yes, yes so I did. constant, every day. Repeatedly, I think. Oh my yeah. goodness, am I wrong? Have I got this totally yeah. wrong? Yeah, that's but, it. And there is a bit of you that wants to be wrong because it would be much easier I, just to follow the party I, line. As I said in my article, I would love to be wrong. It would be mm-hmm. so much more comforting to believe that I was wrong. In but Christine, we're not wrong. I genuinely don't think that we are. And I know that we want to be wrong in this, but we're not. This is why I think we're moving on, Like I think, in the argument about COVID. We are moving past the point now where we're focusing on, like, who's right and who's wrong about how dangerous this virus is or what the risk is. And where. I mean, to me, the data on all of that is very, very clear. Mm-hmm. If you're elderly and especially if you're elderly and ill with other things, COVID is a risk to you. Nobody's yeah. denying that. It's not, you know, even 
even having said that, the elevated mortality risk in Scotland last year for the various age groups was, well, it was for most age groups, it was no elevated risk. Mm -hmm. In fact, children were less at risk last year, I believe, because, you know, there were fewer of them dying in accidents and things because they weren't on cars and there were... Yeah. But even for the elderly, I think for the over 85s, it was less than 2% elevated for the whole year. Yeah, I think for young people, it's going to be elevated probably by the same this year because I think there's going to be a hell of a lot of suicide. I know. I've already heard about eight this year. Yeah, I've... You've heard of eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everybody's starting to notice that they're hearing about a lot of suicides. But again, see, we're talking now, we're, we're always being drawn back to the, the data and the facts, and I myself mm-hmm. there got drawn back to it. But to me, there's a much bigger moral question here, which is like, let's forget, let's pretend that we don't even know what the risk is of COVID and that we've got no information on it. What are you prepared to give up for your safety mm-hmm. against one risk. Like, how safe do you want to be from COVID versus how much danger do you want to put yourself in in every other aspect? Like, do people mm-hmm. think that losing their freedoms is safe? Because it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, no, it doesn't make you And I think even your health, I think everyone's health is suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously during the summer last year everyone's out walking and strolling mm-hmm. about and but I mean there's days where I think I think hard to get my steps in because mm-hmm. I just feel so blah. I it know. just makes you feel down. And that can you know, if your mental health's not good, it has an impact on your physical well, health. Your brain is part you of your body. <laughs> you know, they're all yeah. the same it's all the same system and there definitely, I mean, without, there's no argument here that every single person in the nation is stressed just now. And we've yeah. probably, we've yeah. probably never, ever since the war, maybe. Even then, when, even during the wars, people could be together. And mm-hmm. separating people from their family and friends is just about the worst thing you can do to a yeah. human body. You know, human bodies need touch and they need... Um, well, that's precisely why it's classed as a human right, as a yeah. right to family life. Yeah. Because so, it is so dangerous. And we know what the, like, every single person in the country is stressed. Even if you're a lockdown supporter, you're stressed. If you're a lockdown sceptic, yeah. you're stressed. Um, and some people are more stressed than others. But we know that stress has devastating effects on people's health. And I do wonder in 10 or 20 or 30 years' time, you know, when people like me, I'm 37, in 30 years' time, I'll be 67. What's my health going to be like? What is my What is the impact of this year going to be on my health in the future? Yeah. Our yeah. children are growing up in a very stressful environment. What effect is that going to have on them, on their, not just their mental health? I mean, we can all imagine what the effects on their mental health are going to be, but I do believe that the physical effects on them are going to be enormous. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'll tell you another thing with this, it's women are being, um, oh. I think women in particular are going to suffer because I think careers are going to suffer mm-hmm. because generally it's a fact of life that in most families, the children tend to focus on their mums as a caregiver. And so I think women's careers are going to be affected disproportionately. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's a huge issue, Christine, and I don't know if a lot of people are aware of this, but... Um, the smear test situation is 
they're really, really behind. Oh, I think it's about six or nine months. Um, but also on top of that, I don't know if anyone um, remembers the whole Jade Goody thing. And um, in Scotland, we were we were kind of like, oh well, we're, we're better than England because we get them earlier and we get them every three years. That's actually been changed to every five years, and they don't start to twenty-five. I think it is. Mm-hmm. So that's been changed, and I don't think a lot of people realise that. Is that maybe in response to the HPV vaccine being? I think it possibly is, but um, um, it, I mean it probably is. But still, people that have maybe not been able to get the vaccine yeah. or whatever need to be able to get that. And I think a lot of women just they just wait on their later coming through. Um, and I think, you know, there maybe needs to be a public health campaign about women if there is changes, etc. They need to get in touch with the doctor because it might be another two years before they even get the smear test. Yeah. And they're still expecting it every three years What's and it's actually mean? every five years now. I don't know. That's a really interesting point. I don't know what's been happening with them, like breast screening as well. I think that's probably running behind as well. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, one person that's had it um, who gets it frequently, though it's a, um, uh-huh. someone I know. But I don't know. I don't know what's happening with the breast breast screening as well. But I certainly know about the. I certainly know about that one because I've been chasing it up. Um, and they can't actually. So I was actually getting an examination for something else, and they couldn't do my smear at the same time. They, even though I was getting the examination, they couldn't do the smear at the same time because it was like one of these computer says no things. Um, so it could have been done already, but it wasn't done um, because it, obviously they, it hadn't flagged up in the system that I was due, even though I was due in August um, because they are running behind. So that's something I think that as ladies need to be aware of. Mm, well, I mean, that's been well publicised, hasn't it, recently, that um, so many undiagnosed cancers walking around out there. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, well, I mean, I said that, I wrote that in my article yesterday, just the problems that we're storing up here are immense. Yeah, and it's it's weird because it's like why would the initially they're going on, you know I mean, I'm no I'm no expert but when they started cancelling things and putting them back six months to to the winter when it's a respiratory virus, it's like are you are you crazy? <laughs> you know, like what why are you doing this? Why why once the first peak was over didn't they just quickly start getting everything back on track to prepare for the winter? It was obviously always going to peak again in the winter. Yeah, well, Surely it's a, that's it's, common sense. It's a coronavirus, so yes. And, yeah, and that's what I don't understand. I can't understand why the, the people in the NHS were not shouting and screaming, going, no, we can't do this. We need to get things moving again because otherwise it's going to be an absolute shitstorm, for a better word, in the yeah. winter. And that's what's happened. Also, why we weren't being encouraged to mingle in the summertime because, you know, uh-huh. if people had been spreading the virus among themselves in the summertime, it, they would have been much less ill. But I think yes. I think this an immunity would have spread. But I think... Um, We've been waiting for the vaccine. This is the thing. It's like we'll wait for this vaccine, and now we've been waiting for the vaccine, and we've 
you know, disrupted our whole lives for nine months. And then we're being told now, well, but once you've had the vaccine, nothing's going to change, really. Yeah, um, I think it's, when, I, when, I, um, when the lockdown happened, it was like, right, we need to do this, flatten the curve to protect the NHS. And for me, that meant protect the NHS and give us time to get more beds, more nurses, more this, more that. But it's not done any of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think the problem is if you've not got um, staff, then there's no point in increasing capacity. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is capacity? You know, yeah, absolutely. You can put more beds in a hospital, but if you've not got staff to look after the people in those beds, then. Mhm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I think, um, again, I think a lot of it's red tape. I think there's probably things that could be simplified. There's probably people within hospitals who could adequately look after certain patients, um, and leave the more trained staff to look after the more complex patients. You know, I do th- again, I don't think there's enough thinking of, of their ways of making things better. It's just, this is the way it is, and that's the way it's always been. You know, I, I, I feel that in so many different ways. I feel that the education, I feel it with hospitals, I feel it with nursing homes, I feel it with so many different things. It's just a case of, this is what we're going to do, and we're not going to actually look at any other options. Mm-hmm. You know, is it going to change? I don't. I don't think it's going. To, it's not going to change until people within the um, NHS. Unfortunately, it's going to take people within the NHS to um, realise what's going on um, and realise that nothing that's been done is really to help them. Um, I think that's what it's going to take to, to make change, to be honest, because I think that's when the country will come together. I don't think anything's ever going to change unless we can get some unity. And that's why I don't like it um, on certain forums when they, you know, they, they are, there's, there's a certain sort of profession being attacked, whether it be doctors, whether it be nurses, whether it be teachers. We all need to, this is only going to change when we all come together. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't see much hope of that happening. No, not yet, but you never know. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your openness and honesty. I'm very sorry about what's happened with your mother-in-law and I'm really hoping that you'll be able to visit her properly mm-hmm. soon. Yeah. Um, I, just, I just hope that... For people that are out there, there are a lot of people out there that don't have families and they don't have anyone to advocate for them. So I think um, we need to be mindful of, of those people too and hopefully we can get some change so that it can help the lives of those that we're not hearing about. Exactly, but voices like yours speaking up are doing that. So keep talking no matter who it's to, it doesn't need to be a big audience, but just keep trying and changing people's minds. And yeah. lots of love to you. Please stay in touch. And I will no doubt be seeing you plenty on Facebook yeah. as usual. And thanks for setting up the, face, the, um, the new website for yeah, the numbers. That's great. That's so. a nice website. Um, yeah, share it and spread the word and 
I am hopeful about 2021. I can see it going the other way as well. So it's lovely to know that people like you are out there. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, we thanks. just all need to be stay together, stick together and try and be mindful of the, the fear in other people. Mm-hmm. Remember, we're human. Yeah. Okay. Human beings. Yeah. <laughs> stay sane. Okay, you too. Thank you for listening. We hope you found it interesting and that you'll join us again soon.